Good morning, Providence. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to cover a large portion of scripture today, but we're going to do it from a higher level than what we normally do. Uh, Luke chapter number 7, and we're going to look at 18 to 35 here in just a, a few minutes. But um, we, all, we all have our doubts, don't we? Uh, doubts about the future. We doubt our abilities. We doubt relationships. And uh, sometimes we doubt our health, the meaning of life. And even sometimes we have our doubts about God. There are times when we, we wonder if God is really there. God, are you there? Are you really there? Uh, when our prayers seem to bounce right back off the ceiling and we feel alone in the universe, suddenly and quite often unexpectedly, everything that we've ever believed about God and salvation will become extremely implausible. Uh, we're, we're tempted to doubt sometimes whether the Bible is really the word of God. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Or whether we ourselves will ever experience the eternal glories. You ever been there? All of us have, haven't we? You ever, you ever wake up one day and think to yourself, what if, what if everything I believe is actually wrong and when I die there's just nothingness? You ever thought that? That's, that's a natural human tendency. Where do these doubts come from? Sometimes they might come when we're bored or we're tired or maybe we're suffering physical illness or physical weakness or something. Sometimes they come when we're grieving the death of, of someone we love and Sometimes they come when we're under spiritual attack or uh, have been given in to destructive patterns of sin. Uh, maybe we're, we're hooked on a sin or something like that. And what happens is we, we become, we're no longer able to think clearly about uh, spiritual things. Often doubts come, and I, I think this is where we're going today, often doubts come when we're disappointed With God. It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? But I think all of us would say that at one point or another, we get disappointed with God. You know, maybe we had, um, when we came to God, we had these expectations of what salvation was going to be like. You know, it's going to be um, roses and whatever else. And when, or maybe when God... Doesn't, doesn't grant us physical healing or he doesn't grant us the, the financial prosperity or the family situation that we prayed for, we're tempted to, to doubt whether he really is what he claims to be. Now, we can understand that, right? We're just regular people. Is there anybody here that's not a regular person? Yeah, Pastor, I'm very irregular. We're just normal people. But where this passage is an encouragement is 
that it comes as a real surprise that a genuine biblical hero like John the Baptist has doubts. And that's what we're going to be reading about today. If you'll stand with me, we'll read about John the Baptist. Verse number 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him and said, John, and John calling two of his disciples said to them, uh, I'm really butchering this. Maybe I should read the text. Let me stop and uh, start over. Verse number 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now let me pause. The one who is to come is the Messiah. That's, that's another phrase for who the Messiah is, the Christ. Verse number 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind bestowed sight. Now, I don't know if this occurred before they asked the question or they asked the question, then he did all this. My, my, the way I read the text is he was doing all of this and they come up and ask him this question. He's healing many people and, and all this sort of stuff. Verse number 22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, <coughs> Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. This is Malachi 3.1. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, I love this, and the tax collectors too, they're the dregs of society, and the IRS agents too, right? They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Lord, I thank you for this passage that gives us a... Um, a good idea of what to do when we have doubts. It also tells us how blessed we are to be in the kingdom of God and the two responses people have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that this will be an encouragement 
to everybody sitting here today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You know, to be honest with you, if, if anyone seemed certain about who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist. I mean, the guy was anointed in the womb. Can anybody else say that? There's nobody that was anointed in the womb. John the Baptist, saving John the Baptist. He was set apart. He preached in the wilderness. And yet, even John the Baptist had a dark night of the soul when doubts began to arise. Now, where was he? He was locked away by King Herod, wasn't he? He was locked away and he was about to lose his life. And I think he knew that his life was just about over. His disciples came to him while he was in prison and told him about all, the, all of Jesus' miracles, about his teaching. And think about it. John, the apostle in his gospel, wrote that if you wrote down everything that Jesus did, there's not a book that contained everything that Jesus did miracles, and all that sort of stuff. And yet, with all of that that John the Baptist was witness to, he still had his doubts about Jesus. Jesus didn't meet his expectations. John preached that the Messiah would come with the Holy Spirit and in, in, in fire, didn't he? With fire? He expected the Messiah to bring salvation and ju to some judgment to others. And so that, those were his set of expectations. Now, isn't that like all of us? Don't we all get in times where we're tunnel visioned? And we, we have whatever it is, whatever expectation it is, we have it in front of us. And we think to ourselves, Jesus, I'm going to doubt you because you haven't done X. And what we fail to do is look around at the magnitude, the absolute magnitude of everything else that Christ has done for us. That's what John was doing here. He's, he's just like you and I, isn't he? He expected that um, something different. Jesus was preaching sermons. He was performing miracles. And John was wondering when he was going to get around to the really important stuff. You know, really important stuff like um, overthrowing the religious establishment, inaugurating a new kingdom, overthrowing the Roman tyranny. When was Jesus going to do this stuff? Jesus, your timetable is not aggressive enough. Have we ever said that to the Lord? Jesus, can you bump things up just a little bit for me? This is what John is doing. I mean, think about it. Your situation is not even as grave as John's. John is thinking to himself, you know, Jesus, you know, if, if you would start this kingdom thing right now, my head would not get separated from my body. Does anybody have something that urgent going on in your life right now? And so, what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Now, this is a familiar situation for all of us. All of us, at one point or another, we're going along, and God fails to meet our expectations. Life gets overwhelmed with problems. We're plagued with doubts. And the question is, what should we do? 
What do we do when we hit this situation? Well, Jesus shows us what we should do. And the first thing that we should do is focus on Jesus' works. I want you to notice how Jesus replied. Now, Jesus, John asked this question. He said, are you the Messiah? What was Jesus' response? Verse 21. At that time, (laughs) Jesus healed a few people here and there. Is that what it says? No. It says Jesus healed many people. That word, the word there is talking about just, you can't even count. You can't count the number of diseases he healed, plagues and evil spirits. And verse 22, go to verse number 22. So Jesus replies, yes, matter of fact, I am the Messiah. So what he says? No, he doesn't answer a direct question at all. Isn't that just like Jesus? He doesn't answer direct questions. Think about Job. Now, what would you do if you were in Job's shoes? You'd be asking the same questions, wouldn't you? God, where are you? What's going on? And he had all these questions of God. How did God answer his questions? You remember? He answered with more more questions. Like, for example, yeah, were you around when I created the world? Uh, Did you see how I created the hippopotamus? Did you watch me when I put the stars in place? Do you know the ways of all these animals that I created? And he never answers his question directly. Instead, he points to his works to tell Job, look, I am the God of the universe. And so the Lord does the same thing. He answered John by not trying to meet John's expectations or giving in to the demand to change his ministry and perform, suddenly perform mighty acts of judgment. Simply what Jesus did was continue to do the work that God had called him to do. What was the work that God called him to do at this time? In his first coming, he was to do acts of mercy and he was preached the gospel. That's what he was called to do the first time he came. And all the things that Jesus listed, you know, the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, and the gospel, even the preaching of the gospel, the good news to the poor, it's, it's all through the Old Testament. These are the works of the Messiah. Uh, several of the places that I researched this week had whole lists of, of Old Testament passages that talk about what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus did every single one of them, including... Isaiah 61. Hold your finger here. Turn to Isaiah 61. I'll show you one verse. I'm going to show you this one because it's also cited in Luke chapter number four when Jesus inaugurated his ministry. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, verse number one. Jesus read from this in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Lanny prayed about that today. I don't know if he caught that. He prayed these things this morning in in his prayer. And so by echoing these words, Jesus was giving John a biblical and practical proof that he was the Christ. 
He, yes, he performed miracles and he preached the gospel. And in doing this, Jesus was doing the very things that the Bible promised that the Messiah would do. He was doing nothing different than what was promised. Jesus was saying, therefore, John, you can trust me for salvation, just like he's saying to you and I today. He's saying to every single one of us, you can trust me for salvation. Blessed, verse number 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These words, by the way, also came from Isaiah. And so Jesus was warning John and us not to be offended by his saving work. Do not stumble over Jesus because he's not meeting your expectations or because you're having spiritual doubts or because you're disappointed with with God. Do not get the wrong idea about Jesus as John did. He is the one. He's the one. If we try to find another savior, we will never be saved at all. Let me say it one more time. If you try to find another savior, you will not be saved. So for example, if you're looking for a savior who's gonna fix your marriage, if you're looking for a savior who's gonna help your employment, if you're looking for a savior who's gonna fix your problems in this life, you will not be saved. Because Jesus Christ came to earth not to fix this life. He came to earth to save you from the wrath of God to come in eternity. And so all who are in Jesus Christ, all who have trusted him, have eternal bliss to look forward to. And meanwhile, we're going to have problems in this life that are going to confuse us, discourage us, and it seems like they're never going to go away. But one day they will. And when they do, they'll be in the rearview mirror forever and ever and ever. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That's a greater promise than, than fixing your problems today. Because today's problems are only temporary. And even if you fix today's problems, guess what? It's like whack-a-mole. Problems are going to pop up tomorrow and the next day, right? You know, when you're young, you don't have money, but you got all kinds of energy. When you're old, you got money, but you have no energy. Am I right? Sometimes you're young and you have no money, and sometimes you're old and have no money. You just have more problems. And that's life. That's this life. And Jesus didn't come to make this life better. He came, he he died on the cross. If we accept what he did by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, then you know what's going to happen? He will bless us with eternal salvation. And that's what we celebrated today. Buried with him in baptism, Romans 6. Raised to new life. Awesome promise. And so Jesus, first of all, shows that he is the one by showing his mighty works. The second section, Jesus declares the high privilege of trusting him. Jesus did... (coughs) Jesus did and said these things because he loved John and wanted to help him become more sure of his faith. But he also wanted to make sure that the people who heard all this 
And, and obviously, wherever Jesus was, there had been a lot of people who had heard John's preaching, right? Everybody knew his preaching. He wanted them to have the right idea about who John was. He didn't want them to have the wrong idea. Yes, John was having his doubts, but he was still a great prophet, and, Jesus, and God used his ministry to help people come to Christ. So Jesus made this comment about John's ministry. Look at what he said, verse number 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. <laughs> Obviously, John didn't meet any of those expectations. I mean, he, he was hardly a reed being blown away around by every wind of opinion. He's not a politician, that's for sure. I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. Which way is the wind blowing? Right? That's not John. John was an oak. He was going to stand up against the, the stormy gales of opposition. Nor... Was he the kind of man who stood around in the palace wearing fancy clothes, eating rich food? Everybody knew how the dude dressed. Camel hair. He had an odd diet. All you people on the keto diet or whatever diet, or Neanderthal diet, or whatever they are, try eating locusts and honey and see what that does for you. See how many houses you get invited to. I mean, nobody invited John the Baptist to their weddings. Uh, John, you know, that's not the dress code. No, we don't have any locusts, John. Right? I mean, he's not, he doesn't get those kind of invites. John the Baptist was one of the most popular teachers in Israel, not because he was telling people what they wanted to hear or because he lived the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Why did people come to hear him preach? Verse number 26 is the answer. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is an amazing little passage of scripture. Jesus gives high praise to John the Baptist, calling him a prophet, ranking him the greatest of merely mortal men. And what made John so great? Was John great because of his attire? Was John great because he ate locusts and still built muscles or something? What made John great? Is it because he was a great speaker? None of that. What made John great was that he had a special calling to prepare the way for salvation. And what made him important was not who he was, but who Jesus is. Jesus was the one who is to come. And that's what made John great. He was more than just another prophet. He was the Messiah's messenger. Let me, let me give you an idea. Let me give you a perspective on all the Old Testament prophets. It had been 400 
hundred years since a prophet had, had spoken. 400 long years for them. Malachi was the last prophet. But Malachi predicted there's going to be a messenger coming saying, prepare the way. And in ancient times, when the king was coming to town, when the king was coming to town, he sent his messenger ahead and said, hey, the king's coming. He's going to be here at 10 o'clock. Y'all get ready. So what they do? They got all the trash off the streets. Everybody put on their best clothes. They came out in the streets and they welcomed the king. It was, he was the last, the messenger was the last um, warning or announcement that the king is coming. And that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a, was a prophet, but he was also the last prophet. And what made him the greatest? What made him the greatest was that he didn't see Jesus from afar like all the other Old Testament prophets. Rather, he prophesied about Jesus and then his faith became sight because he saw Jesus with his own two eyes. That's what made him great. And we, we think highly of John the Baptist and, and, and I think every one of us, wouldn't you have loved to have gone out to the Jordan River to see the guy? I would have loved to have seen him. He was the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus went on to make a surprising statement. And the statement was about our own personal privilege as believers in Christ. He said these words in verse number 28. Look at it with me. I tell you, among those born of women, none, there's not one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You need to understand how, can I use this word, awesome this is. This is incredible. What is he saying? What Jesus is saying is that you take the newest convert, you, you take the weakest Christian, the newest convert and the weakest Christian are greater than John the Baptist with all of his fame and popularity and faith. Why is that? Why would a new Christian or a weak Christian be greater than John the Baptist? The answer is because we have experienced the finished work of Jesus Christ. By the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know things that John could only dream of knowing. We, we know the mercy of Jesus in forgiving our sins through the cross. Think about it. We look backwards. We see the love of Jesus Christ when he died on that cross. He was buried for three days and rose again that third day, making, defeating death. He was the death of death. And then he went into heaven and said, I'm going to send my comforter, another comforter. That word another means another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit is just like Jesus Christ. And he sent him. And because of that, we have greater privileges and we are greater than John the Baptist. Not because of anything in us, but because we now see fully the finished work of Jesus Christ. I spent my 
latter part of my week and my weekend just thanking God for his salvation. Isn't salvation wonderful? It's wonderful to see what God has done. It's wonderful to know how as undeserving as I am that Jesus saved me. And so we know the mercy of God. We know the power of God. Every person here, let me tell you one more thing. Y'all want to experience the resurrection, right? Guess what? If you are a Christian, you have already experienced the resurrection. Because Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. But now you're, we're what? We have been made alive in Jesus Christ. That's the first resurrection. And if the Lord tarries and everybody here eventually has a grave marker, then if you're a Christian, one day your body will experience the same resurrection that your soul experienced. And body and soul will be together and that will be the final the enemy is defeated to death of death. Won't that be wonderful? And so we've experienced the power of Jesus Christ. John didn't get to experience that. Now, there are two responses to that. So, so what Jesus did, when, 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 when we're asking questions, who is Jesus? God, where are you? What's going on in my life? Jesus said the first thing you need to do is one Look at his work. Two, remember the privilege that you have that you know Christ. I want you to, can I, uh, this, is, this is not in the first sermon I preached earlier, just something I've got to say. Have you ever thought that you, if you're a Christian, you have a greater privilege than almost all the Old Testament saints, actually all of them, including Moses. Moses went to Mount Sinai. He saw the glory of God, but Moses didn't see the finished work of Jesus Christ. Daniel didn't see the finished work of Jesus Christ. David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, didn't see the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have. Think about that. When I was a kid, we'd say, put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? But nobody smokes anymore, so you can't say that. But there are two responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people hear the gospel, people respond in two radically different ways. And this is what happens when people listen to Jesus. When people hear the gospel, they never stay the same. Never. When somebody hears the gospel of Jesus Christ... They either accept him by faith and receive new life, or they reject that gospel to their own condemnation. So think about it this way. When you tell somebody the gospel, they are never the same. Their life cannot be the same after that. It can't be. Either they're going to be, they're going to accept it, they're going to be eternally um, uh, with God in heaven, or they're going to reject it, and there's a possibility of condemnation. This week, um, there's a guy that uh, that I, I've befriended the last couple of years at, at the gym, 
and um, I saw him. I hadn't seen him since I got back from Arizona. I saw him the other day and was talking to him. And um, I'm going to I'm going to meet with him this week. Uh, we're going to go to lunch. And my my hope and prayer is that I can give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's my plan. And um, I, I'm excited about it. Uh, another guy you know, um, from from the gym. He, he's a friend of mine. I, I met with him last week and, and or two weeks ago, and he, he texted me. He said, "Let's get together for lunch." And uh, um, we're friends. And I don't give him the gospel every time I see him. But on a regular basis, he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ from me. And whether they accept or reject, these two guys will never be the same after hearing the gospel. Even if, I want you to think about this. How many have had the experience where you witness to somebody and they're completely uninterested? And you're thinking to yourself, Man, the gospel is so exciting to me. Jesus is so exciting. And why, why don't they respond? Guess what? They're never the same. They can't possibly be the same. And so there are two responses to the gospel. Now, um, in, in this passage, look at verses 29 and 30. It says, when all the people heard this, and the IRS agents too, tax collectors, they declared God just, having been baptized at the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. What's going on here? When some people hear the gospel message, either from Jesus or John, they accepted it by faith. Other people did not accept God's verdict. They didn't confess their sins. They didn't receive John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And by and large, the people who rejected the message um, were scribes and Pharisees. Why? By the way, these are kind of like the religious fundamentalists of their day. They rejected the message because if anybody's going to go to heaven, it's going to be them. These men prided themselves on their obedience to God and they wanted to be accepted on their own merit. Frankly, they were offended by the idea that salvation had to come as a free gift. That was offensive to them. They thought they had to earn it. And for their part, they were pretty sure they did. And so the Pharisees rejected Jesus as they rejected John. And thus, they were not saved. Now, Jesus applied this. Look at what he says in verse number 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all our children. What's going on here? In that day, boys and girls love to pretend just like they do in our day. And they love to pretend about weddings and funerals because those are the two public activities that they would see quite regularly. These were common events, and so it's not surprising that children imitated the rituals that they saw in the streets of their city. We do the same thing today, don't we? Well, maybe not now, but we did when we were kids. I remember when I was, when I was a kid, 
um, a bunch of us would be playing, you know, on the playground or whatever. And it was always the girls. The girls would say, hey, let's play house. I'll be the mother. What I didn't know then that I know now is that was code for, I want to boss you around. <laughs> and so then, so then I had to be like the kid, right? And the game didn't last very long because one or two of the girls would start ordering us boys around. Well, what's more fun in a game than disobeying mom because that's secretly what we wanted to do anyway, right? And so pretty soon she'd say, I'm not playing this game anymore. You guys, you guys don't want to play right. And, I'm thinking, and we would say, well, I was having a whole bunch of fun not obeying you. Well, back in this day, Sometimes the kids, they played weddings and they would dance around, boy and girl acting like the bride and groom, um, pretending they're at a wedding. Sometimes they played funerals, singing sad songs, pretending to cry. But there's always those kids who pretended that they were bored. You know that kid? Maybe you were one of them, right? They didn't want to play at weddings and funerals. In fact, they didn't want to play anything at all. So the other children, they would taunt them with a sing-song from the Jewish playground. And the sing-song was, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We played a dirge for you and you did not weep. And Jesus applied it this way. He applied a common phrase that the children would say. First came John the Baptist wearing wild clothes, eating strange food, preaching repentance, This is a dude that wouldn't go to weddings. He wasn't even invited to weddings. All he ever did was play funerals, crying about the judgment to come. John was too primitive for the Pharisees and far too condemning. And when he had the audacity to tell them to repent of their sins, they decided that he was demon-possessed. Besides, a demon-possessed guy, would nobody in the right mind would tell me I need to repent. Only demon-possessed people. I'm too good for that. Then came Jesus, and the Pharisees didn't want what he had to offer either. All of them suddenly changed their tune. The same people who demonized John for not playing at weddings were scandalized by Jesus when he refused to play funerals. Strange as it may seem, people actually liked Jesus. Strange as it may seem, the Pharisees is what I'm saying, right? He went to the parties. He had a reputation for partying, didn't he? They called him a drunkard. All he ever did was spend time with notorious sinners, preaching about grace, offering mercy to people who didn't even deserve it. And his story was not a sad tragedy, but a joyful comedy because Jesus spread joy wherever he went. And this violated their spiritual sensibilities. So they they weren't happy with John. They weren't happy with Jesus either. Some people were never satisfied. These people didn't like John. They wouldn't listen to Jesus. They, They would have neither the holiness and the wrath of God nor the love and forgiveness of God. They you know what they wanted? I read this this week. You know what the Pharisees wanted and the religious leaders? They wanted a God that was small enough to compromise and to pretend that their imperfect obedience to the law was adequate. That salvation was small enough for their merit to earn it. That's what they wanted. 
And salvation's bigger and greater than that, isn't it? The children of wisdom are are people who are justified by faith, who are, who are wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the way for us to be so wise is to see our need of repentance and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Anyone who has doubts should go back to Jesus and, and learn from his works that he is the Messiah. Learn from his teaching that if you are in Christ, you have a, it's a very high privilege to be trusting Christ. And he's warning us not to look for something else, not to look for someone else. Because if you are the person who says, you know, this Jesus that John preached, that you're preaching, Jared, he's not interesting to me. I want the Jesus who's going to fix my life. I want the Jesus who's going to take care of my problems. I want Jesus who's going to smooth the way for me right now. Then you're looking for someone else or something else, and you cannot have You can have that Jesus, but that's not the Jesus that's going to get you to heaven for all of eternity. My question is, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior, the one who is a friend of sinners, sinners like you and me? Lord, we thank you for the salvation of Jesus Christ, that it's not small enough that we can earn salvation by our own merit as imperfect as our works are. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus came to earth. He did the works that you called him to do. He did them faithfully. He did them abundantly. And he did them constantly. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he did it perfectly. Most of all, Lord, after having lived that perfect life, he died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose again. He defeated death. Death is a defeated enemy. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that Jesus Christ is in heaven at this point in time, preparing a place for us so that one day our faith may be sight. I pray that you will encourage the saints this day as I said earlier, I don't know what they're going through, but if, if they're in this world, people have troubles and trials, and I pray that they will turn to you in all your works, that they will hear your gospel, that they will think about the place that they have in the kingdom of God, how privileged they are, how blessed they are, and I pray that they will never, ever, ever look for someone or something else for that's just a counterfeit gospel. In his name we pray, amen.